we tell stories that engage, inspire, and have a lasting impact? How do we turn thoughts and ideas into effective and authentic storytelling? How can we use stories to make a difference in our work, lives, and communities? I'm your host, Camille DePutter, and together we'll explore what it means to tell stories with heart. Welcome to another episode of the Storytelling with Heart podcast. I am your host, Camille DePetter, and with me today is Jason Kraus. Jason is a leadership strategist, executive coach, award-winning author, speaker, and the founder of Level 52. He works with leaders running billion-dollar businesses from Singapore to Silicon Valley, helping them to develop strong cultures of innovation and meaningful leadership. Before his career in leadership and coaching, Jason won four national championships as a Canadian bobsled athlete. Much of what Jason learned about growth and development as a high-performance athlete shapes the work and methodology of Level 52 today through an award-winning framework he developed called Science Behind Success. So much to chat about, Jason. Thank you so much for being here today. It's my pleasure. I appreciate you having me on. I was thinking maybe we could start at the beginning of your journey, you know, I'd love to hear about Level 52 and, and more about what you do, but perhaps you can get into it by sharing how you got here. How did, what was your journey like? Uh, yeah. How did I get here? Sometimes I ask myself that question. <laughs> it, uh, you know, it's, it's like many people's story, just some meandering paths that and universal nudges as we call them that had me end up here um i'm a passionate football fan and i played football after high school and throughout my early football career i was having a lot of injury trouble and that's when someone said hey there's this weird sport called bobsled that has great training for football players and so i just got involved to get to get into the training. And somehow that turned into an eight-year career as a national team athlete that I chose, I made a difficult choice to leave football, get into athletics. And it was really my life as a high-performance athlete that was the origin to the work that we do at Level 52. And through that eight-year career, like national team Olympic athletes, you've got one objective. That's to seek to be the best, represent your country at the Olympics. Mm -hmm. And so after eight years going into the Olympic year, ranked top 10 in the world, that was my target in 2006. And then life threw some curveballs in that my childhood best friend, roommate for several years, he'd been fighting cancer he passed away two weeks before the Olympic year. Yeah. And there I was, yeah, there I was going into the most exciting year of my life with tragedy. Mm -hmm. And it didn't matter how strong or fast I was. I couldn't put it together. And very quickly, that dream evaporated. Now, in hindsight, it's always easy to see that in in those tragic moments is always uh, a seed that's planted for something mm -hmm. else. And, and for me, I was forced to ask the difficult questions like, 
what value can I bring my world if I don't have the Olympic rings tattooed on my shoulder? And through that process, I realized that I was stuck in a very common trap of destinationitis, Mm. where I believed that when I get to the Olympics, then I'll be really important. Right. And so the death of my best friend and the the Olympic dream being yanked out from underneath me uh, was a tremendous disruption, but ended up being a critical platform for the work that I do now. Mm-hmm. Wow. First of all, thank you for for sharing that and, and being you know honest about both the loss of your friend and how hard that grief hit you, but also the the loss of the goal and that how devastating that can be and confusing at the time. Um, interesting also that by the way that you came to into bobsled via injury, uh, just like our mutual friend, my client, Steve Mesler, who was on this podcast or earlier things yeah. happen, right. And they take us in directions we couldn't have planned. It, it, Definitely. Things happen. But that's the interesting thing about the sport of bobsled. There aren't many people in this world that are like seven, eight years old that lie in bed dreaming about being the next best Olympic bobsled champion. It tends to be a sport for second chances. Mm -hmm. And so when you then got through the, you know, your experience of having the Olympics as the goal, when that dream died, so to speak, where did you go next? What was, how did you navigate that next part of the journey? Well, one of the gifts of being a Canadian athlete is you get a year of tuition for each of the years that you're a national team athlete. And so I had the gift of opportunity through the education uh, that was offered to me. And I I wanted it to be different. Like I didn't want to just go do something because it made sense. And I had studied business. I wanted something different. And it was my sister that that said, have you ever heard about coaching? Like not sport coaching, mm-hmm. but like professional coaching. And I kind of looked at it and I thought, well, it sounds interesting. Whether or not I want to be a coach, these look like skills that could be very useful. And I got into a program through the University of Calgary. It was with their continuing ed program. And after the first day, I was blown away. Mm-hmm. Like how such subtle skills could make a significant difference in the way we communicate, connect, and empower others. And that was really the beginning of the next professional chapter. And so oh, how did yeah. you go through that? What what did that look like then? So you got through this, the coaching program. Yeah. What happened next? <laughs> well, it was pretty messy. And like I was I was committed to starting a coaching business. And I had moments of success where I'd have, I was just Jason Kraus, this is me as a coach building my business. And I had some success and then a lot of dry periods. And a great example of that is when I was about to have my first child and the business was quite lean. We were in a lean period 
And my wife at the time was very stressed out about our financial situation, as was I. And so I was like, okay, I got to give up this coaching dream and go apply to, to get jobs. And I applied for everything just to pay the bills. <laughs> and I remember I was at a job interviewing to be a salesperson for industrial racking. <laughs> Not a passion of mine. <laughs> and it was minimum base salary with some commission. And I was, I thought I nailed the interview. I was asking great questions. And the interviewer at the end goes, There's no way we can hire you. <laughs> like you're overqualified for the job. I'm uh -huh. like, I couldn't even get a job selling industrial racking. Uh -huh. However, through my network, it was shortly thereafter that I got a job with a management consulting firm, which was work that I wanted to be doing. Our, our mutual friend, Steve Messler, helped facilitate that. And that was really the next step in my career, mm -hmm. which continued to evolve where um, the institute I got certified with through my networks there ended up being a senior leader position with their firm a few years down the line uh, based out of San Francisco. And so like there have been big career steps that happened along the way. Right. And then to get to the level 52, how level 52, I had international responsibilities as an executive with the Coaches Training Institute. And I would go to conferences every year with the best leadership training development out there. And it still wasn't good enough. Like there's still a global issue around leadership. And our friend, Steve Messler, and I had developed a really interesting concept called the science of success that we delivered a pilot for at the Warrington School of Business down at the University of Florida. And even in the ugly version that we delivered back then, people's jaws dropped, their eyes got big because it was very compelling. Mm -hmm. It lost steam because it missed the application of leadership, which is why it went on pause. But I knew that if I didn't give it the full court press, I'd be regretting it. So I left a great job and started what's now level 52. Okay. Yeah. And so that whole period of time then from say retiring from sport to starting level 52, how many years would you say that was? So I left sport in 2008 and a brief comeback in there, but I, yeah, that's a, that's a side story. Uh, so 2008 and then I, we are in year number seven of level 52. Very cool. So about eight, eight years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, and I appreciate you sharing that. And, you know, I, I partly I wanted to explore it with you because I think it is also helpful for for all of us to hear and just kind of be reminded of people's journeys and the sort of up and down and closed door and open door and you know zig and zag of figuring things out of building businesses of building brands of our own personal journeys right it can be so easy to see just the highlight reel or the end des destination and not necessarily the circuitous route that took us somewhere. Does the circuitous route ever stop? 
Right. Right. I'm sure many of the people you speak to share a similar experience in that my level of confidence about where we're at and where we're going wavers significantly day to day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) certainly even throughout the day sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. How the day starts may not be how it ends, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. You said something there that really struck me, which was something like that we have a global problem with leadership, something to that effect. Can you explain what that's about? Well, I'll give you one example. This whole engagement conversation, employee engagement, that it's growing the amount of active disengagement from employees, even despite the fact that it's been a focus for many organizations. It's not a generational issue. It's not an employee issue. It's a leadership issue. And so when you think of the billions of dollars that are spent every year on the pursuit of better leaders, if better leaders aren't being created, that's a terrible investment. And someone has to say, what are we doing wrong? Yeah. And so there's a global issue of leadership when people spend the majority of their waking hours at a place that makes their heart hurt the most. That's a big problem. Yeah. When you say then, uh, then we're doing something wrong. (laughs) I know this is a big question, but what are some of the things we're doing wrong? Uh, Well, leadership, looking at leadership as an event when we have time. Um, High quality leadership training is for those who can afford it. You know, executive coaching is a big investment that many organizations aren't willing to invest, uh, maybe in the executives. Um, but it's, it's looked at as a thing that is generally course corrective rather than preventative. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you, you relate it to the dental industry. When did dental hygiene take an exponential leap when daily brushing became an important part of dental hygiene, not just the painful extractions. Mm -hmm. And you take that same metaphor. Why is it that in organizations and businesses, we wait for the painful root canals before we expose people? And when we do, it's such a random periodic thing rather than a part of the critical process in the function of a healthy, thriving culture and organization. Yeah. Now that's that's my belief. Right. And you you use a term then called meaningful leadership. Can you unpack that for me? What does that mean? It's individual and it's intentional. In our programs, if I step into a room at an event and I ask the question, I want you to talk to the four or five people around you and One at a time, ask and answer this question, what is leadership? And with a hundred plus people, how many different answers are we going to get? Close to a hundred. While there may be some commonalities, 
I think one of the problems is people fall into a place where they pursue the definition of leadership. What is the definition? They start putting on clothes that aren't theirs. They start stepping into something that isn't true to them. And that's what gets them into trouble. And so one of the first things we throw out the window when we're working with leaders is forget whatever definition of leadership there is out there. And your job is to commit to finding your definition. How do you want to lead? Good, bad, and ugly. What are you going to be unapologetic about in the way that you serve and create great things? Because most people fall into, you know, getting a leadership position because it's the next rung on a corporate ladder. And you've likely heard that saying, they spend their whole lives climbing only to realize it's propped up against the wrong wall. Mm -hmm. When do you really love empowering and igniting people? It's the hardest part about business. The tactical stuff, you put some heads together, you're going to figure it out. The human stuff, well, guess what? The way that you and I show up day to day is going to be different depending on everything from our diet, our relationships, what's happening in our world. And leaders have to be able to navigate the complexity of every day. Yeah. Yeah. Something that comes to mind as you are saying this is, is the word authenticity. And as a communicator, I try to help my clients communicate and express themselves both effectively and authentically. And in for for professionals and when we're communicating on behalf of a brand and a business and trying to influence other people and have a positive impact and have clear goals and results as a, you know, as an outcome of that, but also stay true to ourselves, um, it can be challenging to navigate all of that. What are your thoughts then on, okay, how do we, how do we be true to ourselves and the way that we want to lead and how we want to show up and express ourselves while also still feeling that we're doing a good job upholding those professional responsibilities that come with being a leader? It's hard. Because authenticity isn't processed from, in my opinion, authenticity is unfiltered. It's like authenticity is the true stream of thought feeling right now. And when we start to filter that, then it, we risk it being inauthentic from my perspective. So that's where I often urge leaders that if you really want to be authentic, how do you earn the right to be authentic? And Because authenticity can be very confronting. If I'm angry, and if we do have safety, then authenticity means I'm articulating my thoughts and feelings right now. Yeah, of course, we want it to be emotionally intelligent and delivered in a way that it can be received. But people have to be comfortable with your intensity if that's authentically you. People have to be comfortable with your thoughtful reflection, even though they might be waiting for action. And so authenticity is well-engineered. 
because you got to be ready for each individual's way of authentic expression because you may not like it, but yet it's liberating for those that can be in a space with team members that accept it, even though they might not agree with it, they're going to accept it as the mosaic of our team culture that creates great things together. Mm. So what I'm hearing and understanding from you is that it is both creating an environment where you are, as you say, earning the right to be authentic. And I'd, I'd love for you to, to unpack that even a little bit more. But if I'm sort of doing the thing so that I am in a position where I have earned that right, so to speak, to, to know that I can show up as myself and I'm facilitating an environment where other people can do that as well. And I can tolerate <laughs> or know how to interact with or kind of manage whatever their authentic feelings, reactions, processes, et cetera, maybe. So it's not just about, hey, how do I show up? but about how do we create an environment where we can all show up. Am I interpreting that correctly? That, yeah, it's well articulated. A leader's job is to create the conditions for success. And if you and I work together, then it's, it's reliant on what we call engineering a strong relationship. But then we also have to engineer the collective relationship with our executive team or whatever team that we're on. And those are, while there are some similarities, there are some different things. And it's often what leaders miss. Very intentional engineering. We engineer software, pipelines, buildings, bridges for what? High reliability. And I think you'd agree that inside businesses, we rely tremendously on relationships to get things done then why don't we put the same intentional effort into engineering a relationship of integrity? Because when push comes to shove, we don't want that foundation to break. And so the more you and I can talk about the good, bad, and ugly things that are a reality of the way that we do our work and express ourselves in the truest way, then we can develop what we call strategies if we forecast friction the inevitable friction that's going to occur as we show up at, at our best, how are we going to navigate that? Mm -hmm. So one of the ways of doing that so that we create the space for our authentic expression to show up because it's one of the things that shuts people down and has them looking for other work is because I don't feel like I can bring my best, express myself. Mm -hmm. And one of the things people want to do most is find a space where they can be professionals and step into a place of unencumbered expression. Right. And I think many people think that's impossible. Not impossible. Um, but it takes work. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, that's one of the reasons why I started my own business and, and working for myself nearly 10 years ago, because I, in with some exceptions, Whenever I was in a more corporate space anyway, you know, and, and for me, well, that included agencies, being in-house in a uh, nonprofit and, and so on, I felt that I could not bring my full self and my full strengths and gifts, passion, intensity, reflectiveness, perspective, et cetera, 
I couldn't bring that um, because it was employers always sort of just wanted somebody to do a job and fit in a little box. And if I, any parts of me that didn't quite fill that box or, you know, leaked outside (laughs) was a problem. And I eventually got to a point of thinking, you know, I'm going to choose my own clients. I'm going to choose the people that I can work with where I can, you know, love and respect them and bring what I have to that and, and sort of vice versa and to help them also then do what I have felt at different points in my life I couldn't fully do, which is to express themselves, be who they are, and still, you know, make that kind of impact that that they want to make professionally and personally. Um, and I think there's many folks where even that <laughs> that dream is shut down. It is, and it's hard to reactivate until it takes a nightmare to wake them up for most people. But what you're saying is so important, and I think that's one of the shifts businesses need to make. It's not about stuffing you in a box. It's about saying, hey, here's what needs to be created. What kind of box do you want to create for yourself? From a box fort to whatever you want to make it. Like, how do we create the box? Because a box can be helpful. Doesn't mean you have to stay there. But what's the box? the space you want to create for yourself to achieve great things in this organization. And it's something that we've had great success with helping organizations shift that fit into the box mentality to creating space for individuals to do great things. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about some of the ways then that you go about that? Uh, Like just even some examples, how do you then, um, like what kind of an inf- intervention would you do in might you do in an organization to or to help with that or prevent also that from happening and to create a more flourishing uh culture oh there's a lot there like with the word <laughs> cult with, with the word culture for example yeah take it run with it yeah we we do a lot of culture work and it's from our perspective it's done so wrong you do you do the culture work from the top and it's about the values and cascading the values and i believe values are important but many organizations stop there they don't put the focus on the other layers of culture that i write about in my book there's the organizational culture the structures the way we do business make decisions but then there's the team culture the space that you and i and the others on our team is a unique space And then there's the individual culture. And we use the science of epigenetics to explain this because it doesn't matter if you are a PhD trained in the most brilliant school and you get thrown into an awful environment. Are you going to be a brilliant mind that's creating great things in the business? No, because for a variety of reasons. You might not be getting feedback. You might be getting nasty feedback. You have no direction. And so what are the things going on inside your head? Am I valued here? What's my job? How do I communicate value? And all of those things impact your individual culture. Mm -hmm. The stress. The stress versus inspiration. The freedom versus feeling restricted. And so that individual culture 
for every person in your organization is what creates your culture. Because the way that we show up as individuals creates the culture. Inputs influence expression. Garbage in, garbage out. Doesn't matter if I hire the best talent on paper. If I can't activate that, inspire them, connect them to the vision, they're not going to show up at their best. And the metaphor we use is there's genetically no difference between a caterpillar, cocoon, and butterfly, but they're remarkably different expressions. Mm -hmm. And the same thing happens inside the business. You've got people slow and sloppy, shut off, leave me alone in their cocoon, or ones that are the greatest expression of what they bring to work every day. So how do leaders create that? One way. Yeah. (laughs) Now to get to the practical side of your question is for many of our clients, they've changed the game in the way that they manage talent, set goals. And it's often by a simple but incredibly significant question. Imagine you and I work together. I'm your leader and I come in and we're goal setting for the year. And I say, okay, what's going to make this the best year of your professional career? Now, if you're like most, you're going to give me a blind look because our ability to dream and create has atrophied. And so you need some coaching, some polling, some championing. What would you do Mm -hmm. less of, more of? What risks would you take? What area that's completely different would you grow in? Now I'm starting to make your box bigger so that you don't see this as something confining. Now that you're seeing, hey, this box is big enough. I can color on the walls over here. I can do something different here. But without exploring that about you, then I'm just enslaved to the corporate objectives and hoping that I reach them so I can get my bonus and spend my two weeks having fun. Mm -hmm. I know I'm dramatizing it, but it's not that far (laughs) off. No, I honestly, it's, it's really not. I've been in some, uh, some environments with really, with really toxic cultures and the idea of, of even being able to be in a place where you're asked those kinds of questions is uh, I mean, it's a very inspiring notion. It also, it, it makes me think about if you are, you know, we're talking about this more from a standpoint of, of leadership and how and why leaders should start to consider these questions and maybe take these issues more seriously or give them a new, bring a new lens to how they're thinking about uh, culture and, and leading teams and so on. But as individuals, if you're an individual working in an environment where that is, that is not the culture, it's, it's, nobody's going to ask you those questions. Um, is there a way that you can inspire change or start to move the needle a little bit, or even to provide more of that kind of thinking for yourself and the people you work with. Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah. With the immediate story that jumps to mind, we have a program that's mostly middle managers that goes through, we call it the accelerated leader program. And we introduce this section. You want to increase engagement. It's actually very simple in a world where we love to make things complex. Start with one simple question which is the question I shared. What would make this the most uh, or the best year of your professional career? And a few years ago, one of our participants 
said, you know who I'm going to ask before the people on my team? I'm going to ask my boss. And in a very transactional environment, he said, that single question started to shift the way my boss engaged with us. Like It's so simple. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes the things that we work with leaders on are so simple that people either dismiss them or step over them. Yeah. But it's always the simple things that make the most significant difference. As an athlete in a sport where a hundredth of a second makes the difference between nobody ever remembering you or you having a medal, it's the simple things. Mm -hmm. There are no magic bullets. Yeah, it's incredible how much that is true over so many different things in life. And I would say that as well with with writing and, and communicating and, and publishing and stuff too. I mean, so much of it comes down to to the basics, the, the sort of, you know, eat fruits and vegetables <laughs> to be healthy, the, you know, just do the do the work, write something, publish it, do the next thing, and and it will will grow. Um, yeah, there's, um, just that you giving that example of this person asking their boss really makes me think like, how come we don't do that? Right. We also are so often involved in our own stories about what this person thinks or this person wants. And we're not thinking of, Hey, what if I were to just ask, just ask them a a simple question and, and be open to hearing that. Why don't we just ask? It's we are masters at making assumptions that create our own drag, debris, and disappointment. And we quickly find ourselves being objects of our environment versus agents of making the shifts needed. And so your example is a great one because there's a big difference between the way the objects or agents engage in their environment. And part of our work is to activate agency in the leaders we work with. So if if I work with you, you're an executive vice president on my team, normally I'd go, hey, here's what I present. Can I get your approval on this? No. Okay, shoot. You know, it's, Mm. again, I'm dramatizing this, but to make a point, whereas it's a far different approach and actually something that is going to fire you up as my EVP. If I come to you and say, hey, Here's what I think the business needs and why. What do you need to see in order to say yes to this? It's just a different way of communicating it. Only one is asking for permission, whereas the other one is an invitation to collaborate. It might not be perfect, but what do you need to see to say yes to this? Mm -hmm. It's a different way of collaborating. And then guess what? Your EVP is going to go... Well, where's this, this, and this? And that gives you an idea as to what's their currency. What are they trading in that you need to hit on when you're communicating to them? And I'm sure you've seen this in your work. It doesn't matter if I'm working with an executive who's in a acquisition with hundreds of millions of dollars. They may have the content, but they need to know their audience and deliver the message so that their content's received. Yeah. A hundred percent. And that's just reflecting on and and thinking about and paying attention to your audience matters 
so much. It's it's truly one of these fundamental things that we always have to wrestle with, and that as well is a is a skill and a practice because I think also what's embedded in what you're talking about is empathy. I mean, even saying uh, posing that question to your boss of something like, "What would make this your best year?" or "What do you need to see?" You know, I think one of the things that feels unusual to me about that is that the person in this hypothetical scenario is remembering that they're talking to another person, another person who has their own dreams, goals, aspirations, frustrations, um, decisions they have to make through their lens and their point of view. So it sounds to me something that you're saying and something that I try to coach my clients on as well is continuing to come back to trying to see this thing through someone else's eyes and be open to the feedback or response or any other kind of data you can get your hands on to try to put yourself in that position. Definitely. The empathy mapping process is something we pull in, we whiteboard with our executives when they need to deliver a message. What are the wants and the wishes of your audience? What are the pains that they have? How do you want them feeling, thinking? What do you want them saying after? What are the actions you want them taking? When we talk about intentional leadership, if I'm delivering a message at an all hands meeting, that's my starting point. Because I've seen some awful all hands meetings where a leader gets up there and the leader's so excited saying, we're quadrupling our revenue next quarter. And this leader and the executive team are so excited, but what's going through the thoughts of the people out there? They're going, oh, there goes my evenings and weekends. Yeah, exactly. Or like, hey, good for you. Or, you know, we worked so hard to do this for you. I, 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 I'm smiling and, and nodding as you're talking because they <laughs> go through the same kind of process, right? Because I will work with clients on things like speaking notes and which may include to, you know, all hands meetings or major meetings, um, with, you know, different, uh, stakeholders and, and people throughout the organization. And it's, I mean, it's incredible to me how easy it is for anyone to skip over that initial step of even thinking about who's there, what's on their mind, what do they need, what do they want, what's running through their heads, and also even, well, hey, what do you want them to do? How do you want them to feel? How do you want them to think? What do you want them to walk away from here? What do you want them to do differently? Like Even what's their starting point, but also what do we want to influence? Yes. If A tree falls in the forest and no one's around to hear it. Does it make a sound? I stand in the side of things where the answer is no. Because in order for something to exist, it needs a receptor. And just because you stand up there and deliver a message doesn't mean it exists. If you don't know how to create a readiness and an absorption of your desired audience. And I think that's a huge mistake and a blind spot for leaders. Just because you say it doesn't mean it exists. You need to make sure it exists. And in order for it to do so, it must be received. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I love that message. You had mentioned earlier something about assumptions that I wanted to come back to. Um, because I know that also as some part of your process, you will also do uh, 360 peer reviews. How do you help people to get more feedback and, and perhaps with that as well, you know, challenge assumptions that they might be making about themselves or their leadership or what's working or what's not? A 360 review is one of the greatest ways to get feedback that can make a difference. When people feel like they have a confidential way to truly express both what they appreciate and what they don't can create great opportunity for a leader to learn about themselves, especially the more senior you are, you get less authentic and consistent feedback. People start to tell you what you want to hear versus what you need to hear. That's why 360s are an essential part of the work that we do so that you can know the good, the bad, and the ugly. And, you know, one of the ways, one of the reasons why it's important and a story that I love to tell our leaders when we're doing this is when I was leading a program like six years ago, we were about to deliver 30 reports, 360 peer feedback reports, and I was pulling into the parking structure and backing up my car into a stall and my beeper started going off. I looked in the mirrors. I'm like, what's going on? I've got like 10 feet to go. And so I kept backing up. The beeping intensified, stopped again to see if there was an issue. There was no issue. I don't know why my sensors were going off. So I kept backing up and smash my back window shattered because there was an overhang that my sensors were picking up, but when I checked my mirrors, didn't exist. We all have those. There are messages telling us, you need to course correct, but we rationalize. We don't do anything about it. We dismiss it. And then things shatter and they become really hard to clean up, really expensive. So what I love about 360s, periodically, is that it gives leaders real feedback that they can soak into and then make intentional choices about what they work on. And here's the hard thing that a mentor of mine said, self-realization only comes through bad news. Does if it have only, to? <laughs> yeah, I know. If only it could be through those beautiful moments of insight and inspiration, but those evaporate because they don't hurt enough. And oftentimes 360s are difficult to hear and exactly what we need. Mm -hmm. What's going through your head? I was just thinking back to reviews I received. I received a review once um, when I worked in an agency. And people told me, yeah, all kinds of great stuff. But unilaterally there was this piece of feedback that essentially said um you're not really you're not you're not willing to be vulnerable and really show us who you are and that there was that i was missing that sort of you know authentic just being me piece and i think at the time i was younger and i was trying to be 
in a way that, you know, sort of some of the things you described before, trying to be professional and a leader and my work and doing a good job really weighed on me. I was afraid of not being enough, not being good enough, afraid of failing. And uh, I was used to, I think, kind of portioning out my different selves in different environments. So I would, you know, go out with with friends that I worked with and stuff and and be me. But I remember my manager at the time saying, like, we can't see your like sweet, funny, goofy self here. And so people expressed it in different ways, but there was no denying it because it came in a some shape or form from just about everyone. And I was devastated. Because I was, as I said, being so hard on myself already at the time, it felt like another way that I wasn't measuring up. That's how I interpreted it. Um, But as it sunk in and as I grew in other ways and kind of received this lesson in a variety of ways, I was able to look back and be like, yeah, I, I get it now. And I don't want to live or work in that old way ever again. And so in many ways it was, I mean, it was a really powerful and important, but painful lesson. Because it often takes a nightmare to wake us up into seeing things a different way. It's a great example. And it's why the self-help industry and the leadership training industry continues to be multi-billion dollar industries. Because when we receive information in a nice way, it might cater to our preferences, but it's not what we need. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Jason, we're getting close to uh, our the end of our, our time here. I could talk to you for ages. I, I'm i curious one thing before we go is like, how do you then take take this stuff and use it yourself and in your organization you know it's like you're the the people who teach it and and train it to to others how do you um how do you foster this in your own business in your own life it has to be intentional and i don't always get it right i i am susceptible to the same things as everyone else. As our business rapidly grows, time diminishes. You have to be very intentional. But the one thing I do that really helps is anytime I lead a program, I fully immerse myself in it. I don't just teach it. I I revisit all my materials. 